Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what you will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk 1, 12 through 2, 1. Good morning. Um, so thanks for joining us. I know that there are tons of fun things to do during the summer and for students, uh, unless you have to be here, I know you'd rather be elsewhere here, meaning Gainesville near the University of Florida or Santa Fe College, you know, the, the bane of your existence for the time being. Um, but thanks for being out. Um, we're going to pick up where Jake left off last week, uh, the verses that Nate just read for us, um, starting at verse 12, or sorry, verse 12 of chapter 1. You want to go ahead and flip there while I'm rambling off the introduction. Um, <clears throat> so my name's Derek. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and um, I, uh, I do this every once in a while. I get to fill in for Kevin, and I enjoy that. And over the summer, we tend to give Kevin a bit of time off um, because, believe it or not, he works pretty hard um, to keep the church functioning. Um, you know, along with the Spirit of God. Um, but here's what I want to do today. So when I finish the sermon today, um, and, and I'll say this a couple of times throughout, I, I'm not going to be able to fully address everything that I could possibly address in, um, in, in, in the topic that I'm going to be talking to you about today. So when service is over, um, I'm going to hang out down here. Um, I'm going to sit down because I am tired. Um, and if you guys have any questions about what we're going to be talking about, feel free to come up and, uh, and grill me. I'm not a, a classically trained theologian by any means, but um, I, I do really enjoy this topic. Um, well, this topic, this process of building a biblical worldview through a, a stronger, um, better study of the Word of God. And so um, if you have questions about anything I say or don't say, um, probably what I don't say more often, then uh, please feel free to come up and grill me. I promise I won't bite. In fact, I will just make it really awkward. So if you can endure that, feel free to join me. Um, so we're going to continue this detour through the Old Testament. I feel like anytime we do this, I have to kind of get up on my soapbox and, and make a case for the Old Testament because uh, we, we tend as a, as, a, as a global church, as a, a global church, North American church, um, particularly in Reformed churches, to err on the side of the New Testament, right? That's where we talk a lot about Jesus and we get to see the exhortations of Paul and the other apostles and um, there's, there's this different feeling in the New Testament. So we, we tend to stay in those letters and in the Gospels. But if we neglect the Old Testament, then we are only building a half-firm faith. Because through the Old Testament, um, 
we, we gain at this critical understanding of our God, of his nature, of his character, his sovereignty. And, and this adds to our understanding of the role of Jesus Christ. In fact, it completes it. Because I would say if you just start in Matthew, like it doesn't really make sense. Like you're going to read four different genealogies of Christ, right? Like, you're, okay, so this guy was born. I don't think that matters, right? Because if you haven't gone back and read why Jesus was necessary, um, then you're going to probably have some gaps in your understanding. Um, and, and what's more is that in the Old Testament, what we would refer to as the law and the prophets, you'll see that occasionally in the New Testament. Somebody will refer to the law and the prophets. We're talking about the Old Testament. Jesus himself says in Matthew that he didn't come to abolish these parts of Scripture. They still matter. From Genesis to Malachi, we see time and time again that God is faithful, that he loves his people, that he is holy. That's important, right? We see a pattern that continues even to this day in the hearts of God's people where God comes to them and and beseeches them to follow him and he gives them good things and he says, follow me, be my people, I will be your God and if you follow me then things are going to be great and if you don't then there's going to be consequences and so people will follow, there's faith and then there is a falling off. And then there is faith, and then there's a falling off. And there's this pendulum swing back and forth through the entire Old Testament. And, and we see God respond through that. And that's part of what's going on even in the text of Habakkuk. That's kind of the backstory, right? And yet God loves his people, no matter how impatient or how faithless they get with him. We see the devastation of sin, the hopelessness of the human creation as a result of rebellion against the Creator, and yet we see hints of hope even in the darkest moments of the history of God's people that provide the hope of redemption, right? And so how could we hope to fully comprehend and appreciate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus if we don't first appreciate the fact that he was necessary, And Habakkuk is this beautiful book for much the same reason that I find Job to be really wonderful, right? I mean, I've never read either one of those books or like some of those more suffering psalms. Like I've never read those and walked away going, man, I'm just not getting it right. You know, like I I read that and I'm like, oh, thank God I'm not the only one who's ever thought this, right? I'm not the only one who's ever questioned God. I'm not the only one who's ever been distraught over something that I can't really reconcile with what I'm seeing in God's word or his character with what I'm seeing in the real world around me. Whereas when I read a book like James or Romans, uh, I'm like, dang it. Like, that's not me, you know? Like, does anybody else ever get that feeling when you're reading through this? If you're, if you're nodding with me, then thank you for joining me. Um, and if you're not, then you're a liar, and you do need grace. And so, welcome to the club. Um, but anyway, the point is that Habakkuk almost seems really out of place in the Bible, doesn't it? I mean, have any of you gone ahead and, like, read, read ahead a little bit? Um, or even if you've just read what we've put up here in the last three weeks? Um, it it kind of seems odd, because you have this guy who's complaining to God, and God's like, well, yeah, I mean, there's some problems. Here's how I'm dealing with it. And then the guy continues to complain. And if you read ahead, there's really not a moment where God's like, hey, it's going to be okay. Like, don't worry. This is going to be averted if we just do X, Y, and Z, right? Like, the whole theme is this destruction is coming. That's it. There is no and or but or, like, destruction is coming seems out of place. Even the last three verses of the book, which have the subheading in, your, in most Bibles, at least in mine, the subheading of Habakkuk rejoices in the Lord, even that has imagery of like starving flocks and, and desolated fields and death and decay 
yet I will rejoice in the Lord, right? Um, that's weird. Like, if you didn't have questions before and I've just given you a bunch, that's good. That's kind of the idea. Um, but, but I can identify with this sometimes, with this sort of approach to the Scriptures or, or this sort of approach to, or this sort of reading in the Scriptures. Um, there's a better way to say that, but you're with me. Um, I can identify with Habakkuk better than I can these more joyful or, um, or commanding books of the Bible. For all of its pain, Habakkuk can be a comfort to us when we face uncertainty, when we're scared, when we feel burdened to the point of breaking, whatever the reasons, right? It's comforting to see that even those on earth whom God held most dear experienced crushing lows. Like, there, I can't think, and maybe there's one, right? I'm, like I said, I'm not classically trained theologian, but I can't think of a character in the Bible, one of the, the, the people that we're told about, who doesn't experience some form of suffering. Even people that God specifically calls out and says, I have a special mission for you. I want you to be my special envoy. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you safe. But it's not the kind of safe that the guy's kind of hoping for, and so there's there's abuse, there is death, there is suffering for all of these people. And all of them at some point seem to cry out to God, why are you doing this? There's a, there's a part in Jeremiah, right? So if you guys have read Jeremiah, Jeremiah opens up with God saying, hey Jeremiah, I knew you in your mother's womb. I formed you in your mother's womb. I knew you before you were born. And I have appointed you for this purpose, to take my message and be my envoy. And Jeremiah says, sign me up. I love the Lord, right? And then at some point in the middle of the book, Jeremiah turns to God and says, you seduced me. You tricked me. He's laying beaten in a ditch, right? Kind of <clears throat> rough stuff, right? Um, but it's comforting to see that when people cry out in their anguish, that God, whether it's to Hagar suffering with her baby in the desert, Right, you remember that? Like, oh God, what are we going to do? And he's like, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. Right? Or it's um, David fearing for his life. I'm sick to the point of death and tears are my meals. Right? God comforts him. Or whether it's Habakkuk here openly complaining to God, God responds. And in his response, regardless of how he responds, there seems to be hope, right? I mean, like, compare, if you're familiar at all with God's response to Job and what we've seen of God's response to Habakkuk so far, they seem wildly different and wildly, like, reversed, right? I mean, like, Job is crushed because his family, his whole livelihood has been destroyed. Like, at one point, all of his children are at a party and the house collapses in an earthquake and kills them all at once. And then after he loses his entire family, he gets boils and he's afflicted with all these diseases and he cries out to God, why? I must have done something to deserve this. And God comes to him and says, get dressed. Let me tell you why I'm doing this. Right? There's not like a, oh, Job, man, I know it hurts. Like he's, he's like, dress like a man and I will tell you why. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were, does, does lightning ask you where it should strike? And then to Habakkuk, who's like, this isn't what your character says you are. He's like, hey man, we're, we're dealing with this. Trust me. Both of them, oddly enough, or by design, depending on how you look at it, end with rejoicing in the Lord. So his mere presence in our suffering, regardless of his exact response, leads us to hope. It's really weird. 
And so in our time together this morning, I, I want to tackle um, some of what I, I think are the key points, maybe key themes in Habakkuk um, stemming from this particular passage. I want to kind of tell you a little bit of what's going on. Um, I think it's uh, very interestingly written, and I'll get into that in a second. Um, but, but first and foremost, I think we have to examine the boldness of Habakkuk, right? Because this is not just simply saying, why God, why, right? Um, I think... Um, I think second, I want to help us begin to think about the presence and persistence of evil in the world. And here's where I say I'm not really going to be able to get into all of this, but what I hope to do this morning is begin the process of establishing a biblical worldview on pain and suffering. Because the Bible has a lot to say about it, and we as Christians should have a different perspective on pain and suffering than, um, than our friends and neighbors and family who, who don't have uh, the Word of God right, dwelling richly in their lives. Um, lastly, I want to point out the, the hope that's, that's still here, right, and, and the hope for us looking at Habakkuk is different than the hope that Habakkuk had when he was writing this, and so we'll talk a little bit about how that overlaps and how it's different for us um, and, and would have been different for Habakkuk in our day, too. Um, so I'll pray, and we'll get started. Um, before I do that, I'm going to take a sip out of my uh, Darth Vader water cup. All right. Um, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way you have revealed yourself to us, the way that you respond to us in our anguish, the way you respond to us in our joy, God, that you are the same from everlasting to everlasting. And I pray that, that I would be able to communicate that effectively today. Um, and Lord, forgive me where uh, I, I might further muddle ideas or, uh, or generate confusion. Um, but God, may your, your spirit of truth guide us through this this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's, uh, let's look at the first verse. So, so 112. Um, Are you not everlasting, O Lord my God? my holy one. We shall not die. O Lord, have you ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So he's off to a good start, right? I mean, it, it looks like, um, so to, to recap, right, uh, he openly complains about Israel being wicked and says, where's your justice? God comes in and says, I'm not just letting this happen. I have a plan. He reveals this divine plan to Habakkuk and says, I'm bringing the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I'm going to call them Babylonians the whole time throughout so you get an understanding that the Chaldeans and the Babylonians are the same. Um, he says, uh, I'm sending the Babylonians to punish Judah, right? Judah is the kingdom that we're looking at. And we see elsewhere in scriptures this, uh, this, basically, sorry, what God says is, oh, no, no, you misunderstand. I'm, I'm not letting this go unpunished. Like, the, like, yes, I'm waiting, and there's a gap here in action, but, but something is going to happen, and he tells him what that is. And so we see elsewhere in scriptures this idea spelled out that God's waiting is often misinterpreted of him condoning evil or not caring for his people. Here's some examples of what I mean, right? So Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil, right? So God doesn't come in and carry out his justice swiftly, so then the hearts of men say, this is okay, we can continue doing this right? 
Um, how many of you have ever done that? Like you, you're doing something you think you probably shouldn't, but you're not getting caught, and so you're like, oh, I guess I'll just keep going. Oh, it, not getting caught yet until you get caught, right? And then it's like, oh, I didn't mean to. Um, like speeding, for example, all of you. Um, in Psalm 50, 51, God says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself. God says to the wicked, you've, you've misunderstood my nature. You think that because I haven't punished you yet that I'm, I'm okay with this, that I'm like you, but I'm, I'm not, right? In Romans 2, 4, Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So any of you who just graduated from college, right? Any recent graduates? Anybody who's going to be graduated from college with student debt? Okay, so there's this term you will learn through all of the literature you receive as a new graduate that's all the different ways you're going to return the money that's been given to you for your education. And there's this term they use called forbearance. Forbearance does not mean, oh, you've hit hard times, we'll just go ahead and forgive this debt. What it means is we will pause the collection process and you can pay us later, right? So, so God's patience and forbearance is not a forgiveness of what has happened, what has taken place. It's rather a postponing of the payment for what he says is due, right? God's patience in its simplest forms is forbearance of a cosmic debt, the penalty of sin. And we know the, the penalty for sin uh, in, in all of its various forms ends in death, Right? Not just death, but separation from God. It, it goes far beyond just like your life will be difficult and you will die. You will be completely cut off, right? So at least part of his intended purpose behind the patience is that we, that we would repent. That we would recognize that we have strayed from his heart and that we would repent and believe, right? And so God tells Habakkuk that his punishment for Israel's wickedness is coming in the form of the Babylonians, so once God's finished his response, it looks like Habakkuk's response is to realize his foolishness, right? Like, silly me, you are everlasting, you are holy, you are my rock. We're not going to die. You're not going to allow that. You're our protector. But as we continue reading, we see that that's just not what's happening here, right? Habakkuk is actually shifting gears and doubling down on his complaint in, in really like the worst and most uncomfortable way to see that I could just about imagine. So read on, let's look at, uh, I'm going to skip a few verses here, but we're going to look at verse 113 and verse 21 because they kind of build this idea. We'll get back to the middle part in a second. You who are purer of eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So let's be clear about what's going on here, right? Habakkuk hears God's response, and rather than marveling at God's sovereignty over even the most wicked nations and his patience towards his people, Habakkuk turns both arguments against God. He rehashes his first complaint and then adds to it. He says to God, so let me get this straight. Not only do you sit back and watch your people turn to idolatry, which, by the way, I thought you were too holy to see evil. You seem to be looking at it just fine, God. But you are raising up a nation that is more wicked 
and by the way, Gentile, that you're going to use to come and crush us even though we're more righteous than they are, even as wicked as we are. Right? And then at the end of this passage, um, lest you still be confused about the heart behind his complaint, he basically says, now I'm going to go sit over there and wait to hear what you have to say. Who's ever said that in an argument? Like you, you throw out a great charge and you're like, what do you got to say to that? That's basically what this is, right? And it never ends well. Don't try it. Um, um, all right, so... Now, some of you here today might look at this with a, a measure of horror. Like I said, it's a little uncomfortable to see this in Scripture, isn't it? I mean, this is like borderline blasphemy, maybe, right? Because we're, we're charging against God. Uh, we're charging him as, as sinning against his own character. That's what Habakkuk's doing here. He's taking these divine attributes of God's revealed nature and throwing it at his feet and saying, yeah, we'll prove it. And at first glance, this looks like a tantrum, right? But, but it isn't. This isn't like when, like my son, when he isn't getting his way, like if I'm not letting him watch Daniel Tiger, if I won't feed his teddy bear, um, if I won't put his shoes on even though he's going to bed, if I'm trying to change his diaper because he's pooped himself, right? And he starts throwing this tantrum, and I'll just lean down, because he's, he's two, he doesn't really know what's going on. Um, and I say, Trip, are you having a moment? And he's like, yes! And then like keeps screaming and punching and swatting and kicking, right? Um, that's not what this is. I have to think that there's some people here today that can completely identify with what Habakkuk is feeling as he challenges God, right? Like even as we try to put on our happy, go lucky Christian facade, like inside we're, we're going through something or we've seen something or something is impending, we're not really sure how we're going to handle it. And there's at least a small part of us going, what's going on? Where are you? Like, you, I'm, I'm yours and you're mine, and there's supposed to be some grace here. Where's the grace? I'm really stressed. I don't, like, it could be something really major, like a sickness in the family, or maybe even in your own life, or, or it could be something really minor, like you're not doing well in school. Even though you're trying your hardest, like, suffering takes many forms, right? It's degrees. Um, his boldness looks familiar to some of us. So we're not just looking at a person who is hurting without cause. We're seeing this prophet broken and angry over the devastation that his people are openly engaging in and the impending devastation that's going to be visited upon them by a godless army. Guys, this is, this is like really raw emotion. May it never be said about the Bible. And I hate it when I get this charge, like, oh, the Bible doesn't understand 2017. The Bible does not sugarcoat pain and suffering. It does not sugarcoat despair. It does not at any point say, if you follow God, your life will be amazing. What it says is, follow God, and it will be difficult, but you will have God. In fact, Jesus says that if you follow him, your life will be more difficult at some point because you are actively working against the spirit of the age, meaning the, the wickedness that's just sort of all around us, right? And, and we can kind of feel that today. We, we as, uh, as, as Bible-believing Christians, have some thoughts about things that are not popular, and if you want to recognize what I mean, if you want to understand better what I mean about swimming against the current, in one of your classes, I want you to raise your hand and talk about the biblical view on homosexuality or the biblical view on, uh, I don't know, gender roles and see what happens. 
Let's remember the more recent history of Israel up to this point, right? They've had generations of idolatry in both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And and in Judah, where Habakkuk is, what he's most concerned about, it it sort of um, has a very, gosh, bleak view. It has a very bleak history. So there's this King Hezekiah. We're going to go back like three kings. Hezekiah shrugs off a warning that because of his wickedness, his sons are going to be carted off to be eunuchs in the king of Babylon's courts. If you don't know what a eunuch is, look it up. It's a, it's a severe punishment if you are the father of sons, and sons mean everything to your kingdom's continued line, right? Like that's a problem. And he looks at the prophet who tells him this, and I kid you not, his response is, whatever, as long as there's peace in my time. So he cozies up to the Babylonians, allows the wickedness to continue at the expense of his sons, practically sacrificing them for a better life now. Then his successor and also son, Manasseh, goes a step farther and and actually sacrifices his son to an idol in the temple of God. He presents his child as a burned offering to an idol in the temple of God. In fact, 2 Kings tells us that Manasseh was so evil that he performed more acts of wickedness than every nation that God had destroyed for Israel's sake up to that point in history. That's how wicked and evil he was. And then he dies, and there's a a guy that comes in and reigns for like two years, whose name I really can't, uh, something, Ammon, um, keeps idolatry going full throttle for the entirety of his two-year reign, and then, and then Josiah ascends to the throne. And Josiah sees the wickedness in Israel and begins to end it. And there's this one really interesting scene where he sends the priests to the temple storehouse, the temple treasury, because the the temple over the years of the wickedness had accumulated wealth by means of charging people to perform their idolatrous sacrifices. So not only did Manasseh sacrifice his son to an idol, but he paid for the pleasure of doing that, right? And so there's all this blood money we might consider. And, And Josiah says, I want you to the priest, he says, I want you to go in there, clear all of that out, and give it to the people who are working to rebuild the temple. We're gonna pay them with that. We're gonna get that out of here. We're gonna redeem it. And while they're clearing out the treasury, the priests find the scroll of the law, the book of the law, it says, and they don't know what to do with it. So they have to go find an old priest who remembers what to do with the word of God. He then takes this to Josiah, and Josiah begins completely reforming all of the wickedness in Israel. And there's this period of revival of worship in Israel. And, and, and Josiah is so good and righteous that God comes to him and says, For, because you have repented and believed, because your, your repentance is genuine, I'm going to rescue you from the destruction that I'm going to bring to Israel. And so um, right before Habakkuk's complaints against God, Josiah leads his people, leads his army into battle against the Egyptians, protecting the kingdom of Judah, and he's killed in battle so that he's not going to see the impending destruction because we're like getting really close to it, right? And so then this guy comes in, Jehoahaz, who 
one, has a terrible name, and two, completely breaks down all the reforms of Josiah. They go right back to everything they were doing before. Temples next to the, t- the altar of God, in the tem- uh, altars next to the altar of God in the temple, right? Um, they build up altars on high places throughout the town, uh, throughout the kingdom, and, and begin openly worshiping other gods. Oh yeah, sure, you could, you could worship God if you wanted it in the temple. But that's not the main point anymore, right? Habakkuk knows where Judah has been. He saw the depravity of Manasseh and he experienced the revival under Josiah. And now he sees all these reforms completely wiped away and Israel's back to its evil ways. In his hopelessness, in his despair, he cries out, how can a good God allow suffering? How many of you have heard that before, right? Like that, that's something, if you have ever spent any amount of time sharing the gospel in whatever form that takes for you, I promise you, you will hear that come up from somebody. That is the quickest charge that will be laid before your feet is how can you serve a God who claims to be good and yet allows all of this suffering? And that's usually where we're like, oh, crap, Right? But this is what Habakkuk is wrestling with right now. Literally, what Habakkuk has just said to God is if you're so holy that you can't look at evil, then how do you not only allow Israel to persist in its sin, but then use this wicked nation to conquer us? So, before we go on, I want us to all do a quick check. Look at the cover of the book you're in, or maybe like the title of the app, and let's make sure that we're still in the Bible. I think we are. Um, but I know it's a little confusing, right? So um, let's go on in verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he makes sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Did I forget to tell you guys this is not going to be like a happy sermon? I'm sorry. In these verses, Habakkuk is saying two things at once in in what I would suggest is some pretty slick writing from a, a literature perspective. He is simultaneously, so that we can kind of put this section of verses together, he's simultaneously charging God. So he's listing the things that God is doing wrong in his eyes. And at the same time, with the same verses, personifying the army of the Babylonians. So when you see the he there, it's dual. It is referring to God and the Babylonians. So let's run through this with that in mind. Not only is he saying, so verse 14, that God is devaluing his people, but he's describing what the Babylonians do to their captives. Verse 14, God is removing Judah's worth and dignity, right? So he's, he's going to, uh, one, allow them to persist in their sin, 
which we know is a crime against the dignity of humanity as image bearers of God. Um, but he's also using a Gentile nation to conquer them, which for Israelites was uh, an added insult. It's bad enough to lose a battle, but to lose a battle to, to pagan worshipers, right? To people who are not like us. They don't have pure blood, right? They're, they're a little racist. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. Um, so insult to injury. God is devaluing us. You're, uh, he's also abolishing their government, right? So when Babylonians come in, they're going to wipe out the, the kingdom, right? They're going to clear out the, uh, the governors, the king, his court, all of them, and then replace the, the king with someone who's friendly to the Babylonian government, right? And they have this little fiefdom going on. Um, and, and your government, right, maybe more so then even than today, though to definitely an extent today, your government's your national identity. It's your protection. It's your, your wealth of resources, right? Um, for, for some, it's, it's their religion, right? Um, veiled in, in patriotism. That, that's very much what's going on in Israel at this time. And at the same time, when the Babylonian army invades, they're going to treat the people like the catch of the day and, and brutalize the leaders, right? Same, same verse. They would use poles with hooks on the end so that like when they're trying to lead their line of slaves from their conquered people, they had this pole with a hook in it that they would put through the cheeks and lead people by a stick, the same way you might like grab a fish with a spear and hold it up, right? They, they used literal drag nets, so they had these nets with rocks and weights on the end that they would throw over people to trip them up and then pick them up in it and carry them in sacks like they just drifted a net, like they just trolled a net through the sea, right? And, and Habakkuk's saying, you're going to do this to our people through this army, Habakkuk's charging God with as much responsibility for these activities as he is the Babylonians. And because God mentions in his first response, and this is where he gets a little uppity, right? God mentioned in his initial response, if you remember from last week, he says that the might of the Babylonian army is their God. And what do you do to gods, right? You make sacrifices to them. And so he says, you are, this is, you are helping them to engage in their idolatrous worship of their own might. So we are going to become, for them, sacrifices to their God, their signs of their strength, their swords, their nets, their army. And you're the one making the sacrifice. So we just accuse God of idol worship. Then he lays this final charge before God in verse 17. And this is where, like, Habakkuk's hopelessness sort of bleeds through at this moment. He says that if God intends to use the Babylonians in spite of his character and allow them to continue their reign of destruction, then there's no hope for the people of God because if God himself won't step in, it's just going to go on forever. So let's turn and face this question head on. If we are to believe that God is good, how do we then reconcile that with the existence of suffering and evil? 
Now that is a huge question and I'm probably gonna regret trying to answer this. Um, I'm not gonna be able to fully answer this, but I think we can at least begin to establish the foundation for a biblical worldview on this topic. If you guys haven't heard the term biblical world, or haven't heard the term worldview, what we're talking about is the Bible for us as believers, if you claim to be a follower of Christ and you claim to believe the Bible, the Bible should inform your interpretation of world events and the world around you to a large extent, right? Now, there, there are some things the Bible doesn't come right out and say, for example, you should uh, invest in this stock, right? Like the Bible doesn't give you investing advice, but what the Bible does give you is a, a compass for decision-making. So if there's a company that engages in brutal tactics in like a third world country, right? Like let's say they're coming in and like tearing down villages and building whatever it is they build to get whatever it is they get to make however much money they make. I'm probably going to want to try to avoid investing in that based on what I understand by the Bible, though the Bible didn't say don't do this, right? Um, so a biblical worldview is incredibly important for us as believers for when we have those moments where somebody's like, how can you believe in a God who claims to be good but they're still suffering? If we don't understand the why and the how and the substance of what the Bible has to say about these topics, then we are ill-equipped to be the ambassadors of Christ that we are called to be. And so my goal here is not to completely build out every single uh, facet of this worldview and give you every single tool I can possibly hope to give you, but I want to give you the starting point right? And then, like I said, if you have questions afterwards, I have a lot of thoughts that I couldn't put in here. I would love to answer any questions or try to answer any questions that you have afterwards. I'll, I'll be up here. Um, so here we go. In order to answer whether or not God is good in spite of the suffering all around us, we have to first decide what we believe about why suffering exists in the first place. There's a few ways that we can answer that question, right? I mean, like, think of a world religion. It probably says something about suffering. Or it probably says nothing about suffering, and that tells you what they think about suffering, right? Like, it's just, it doesn't cross their mind. They don't think about it. I'm going to give you two worldviews that I have encountered the most, okay? Um, two non-Christian non based worldviews. Um, so first, we have the naturalistic or the humanist worldview right? Um, who's ever heard of humanism before? Okay, so like that's good. There's lots of hands going up. Um, so humanism basically says that for all of the problems that the world faces, name one, humanity is the answer. We can, with our own ingenuity, with our own science, with our own know-how, with our own dedication, with our own uh, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps, we can fix it. Yes, we can. Parents giggled, that's fine. Um, Bob the Builder. All right, so um, according to the British Humanist Association, which has the subheading for their group, for the one life we have, right? Like, sign me up. Okay. Um, the humanist explanation for the existence of suffering relies heavily on the implications of human choice. So what they would say is the reason suffering exists is because we as a species are selfish. And so we make choices that are selfish. And when we make choices that are selfish, then we impact others sometimes negatively. To which we all go, duh. P. 
People choose to enact suffering on others or themselves because of a lack of personal enlightenment, right? And so they think that, well, if you just think differently, if you were just better educated, if you were just not you, you'd be like me and you'd be perfect, right? Um, for instance, um, sorry, but they, they don't really give us an explanation for suffering. They say, this is why it's here, but they don't tell you purpose. They don't, they don't make a decision. In fact, they say outright, we avoid using the term evil because it implies supernatural uh, interplay, and we just don't think that's real. But suffering's real. Evil's not. Suffering is real, Right? And what's really lacking for me as I read this is there, there isn't a space in their understanding of suffering for suffering that doesn't seem to have a point, right? So if you live in Ukraine right now, in the Crimean Peninsula, your life probably sucks and you're not here right now. And the reason your life is difficult is because Russia invaded, cut off your resources, and there's constant daily shelling. I was listening to a, a news story the other day on the radio, and the reporter is talking to someone and they're in this neighborhood in Crimea, and, and uh, shells just start like raining in on the neighborhood. The reporters scramble, and the person they're interviewing was like, where, where are you going? Like, they're just so used to it. That's their normal now. And so if you are suffering in the Crimean Peninsula, there's an answer for why. Because Russia's a jerk, right? But they have nothing to offer you for disease, for the loss of a loved one, for, um, for the death of a child, right? Like these things that we would look at and we would go, like, no, like it, there's no understandable reason for this. Like I can't, I can't justify why this happened. It just sucks. You can't make better choices to fix that. You can't science your way out of it. You can't escape it. And so for as right as they might be about the, the impact of our selfishness generating a lot of suffering, they are wholly lacking in like half of what we would consider suffering. The humanist hope of redemption and reconciliation relies squarely on the ability of humanity to lift itself up to a higher intellectual or scientific plane, right? Um, so to quote their paper on suffering, and this is their ultimate point, like anything, you, anything I have ever read from humanists on the problem of suffering, um, when they get into a point they can't really answer, what they say is, well, and this is where this quote comes from, the existence of evil in the world is a particular problem if you believe in a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God. I'm not going to give you an answer for why your child has just died, but I'll tell you, you can't believe in God if it happened. Right? Then there's the, the Buddhist view. Um, and oddly enough, like, that's another, like, I'm, I'm exposed to that on a regular basis, thanks to some friends that I have. Um, couldn't explain why. Um, suffering, from the Buddhist perspective, is explained by the four noble truths, as they're called, right? So first, all life is suffering, pain, and misery. Yay! Like, like there's no escaping it. If you live, you suffer, that's it, right? To be clear, all life consists of disappointment in its natural state. Suffering isn't considered a problem, it just is. Like, they don't say, well, it's not really supposed to be like this, but there is a way to escape it. Um, second, all suffering is caused by human selfishness. That is what they call the attachment to desires. 
you want something, you won't let go of it, you cause someone else to suffer so that you can have it, right? Sounds kind of familiar. Um, Third, selfishness can be overcome, so there's hope, all right. Fourth, misery can be overcome by adhering to the eightfold path. If you ask me, that's three points that they split the last one into four, but I'm not a Buddhist. I can't explain why they did that. Um, The eightfold path is a doctrine that sounds a lot like a self-help seminar, right? It goes something like this in, in a very simple way. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Ten, uh, eight, eight, right? Um, I didn't say ten. Then, if you can do all of those things for all of your life forever, nirvana. And if you screw up, you got to double down and do more because there isn't an option where somebody's like, forgiven. Like, if you, if you blow it, you blow it. Suffering will continue until you die. And then you don't exist anymore. So, yay, you made it out. Both of these sound pretty familiar. Each each of these addresses the cause of suffering. They offer an explanation for the place of suffering, the solution to suffering, and why we ought to care about suffering. Both of these come to similar conclusions on all these, right? So humanity is the problem. Check and check. Humanity is the solution. Check and check. And humanity is the point. What I mean by that is the reason the humanists and the Buddhists say we should seek to eliminate suffering is for our good, for my good, right? So as much as they claim that attachment to desires or selfish choices are the cause of our selfishness, what it tells me is that if I really want to be rid of suffering, then I should do these things so that I can live a better life and I can be happier, right? Interestingly, neither of these really offers a sufficient, sufficient meaning you read it and go, oh, that's something to think about. None of them offer a sufficient explanation for why suffering is bad. It's just assumed, right? Like, it's just assumed that if you live a life, you will suffer, and you're going to suffer for these reasons, but they don't explain to me why I should care that suffering exists, or why I should care that if, if one of you are suffering, I should, I should raise a finger to help you and, and really weep with you through that, right? It seems as though it's, it's bad simply because it causes humans to be unhappy, but I'd submit to you that if we choose to believe that suffering is only defined by our happiness, then selfishness will be a perpetual issue. But that's a, that's a different topic, right? So the majority of worldviews on suffering take similar approaches with variations on these same themes. The Bible, for as similar as it might be in some respects, right? So, so we're all familiar with the terminology of human selfishness being a problem, right? Um, so we're similar there. Um, but the Bible really offers something completely different. So what does the Bible say about suffering? For starters, Christianity agrees that suffering is the result of humanity's selfishness. The Bible calls that sin. But the Bible disagrees with the humanists and the Buddhists, and most of the world's religions for that matter. It states that suffering was not intended to be a part of creation. Right? It wasn't wasn't supposed to be here. Things were supposed to be perfect. Things were supposed to be harmonious. And then something happened and introduced suffering into God's creation. It only exists because humanity rebelled against God in a single act, right, that spawned an endless cycle of selfishness throughout 
all the generations of humanity. So, so we, we talk about original sin a lot in Christianity, and we say that, um, or maybe we don't, I don't know what the thing, Christianity, right, original sin, which says that Adam and Eve created the original sin, and we all carry the guilt of their failure to properly represent us before God. And what people will say to that is, how can you claim that everyone is guilty for what something someone else did at the very beginning of time? How does that make sense? How am I guilty for their actions? But I don't need to be guilty for that specific thing in order to demonstrate a cycle of selfishness, right? Like, I create my own sin, even if you want to not agree with me on on the doctrine of original sin, we're all still sinning. God creates this this creation that he calls good, including spiders, which I find hard to believe. Maybe they weren't really here. And then we, humanity, messes it up. And it exists suffering, right? So, sorry, I'm back up. There are consequences for this act of defiance. When Adam and Eve ate of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said there would be consequences. There are consequences. We disobeyed, we get punished. It's a simple principle. We refer to this generally, this this punishment, we could refer to it generally as suffering, right? I mean, it wouldn't exist if we hadn't sinned, so that's part of the consequence. In fact, if you look at the language of Genesis 3 in the curse that God gives to, to Adam and Eve, he lists out specific ways that there will be suffering because of this act, and you could probably loosely categorize all the suffering we experience in those verses, right? Try it sometime, it's fun. Um, but it exists, suffering exists not because God isn't good and not because God can't stop it and not because God isn't even there in the first place. Suffering exists because God is true to his word and that is significant, both for the definition of why suffering exists and how we end suffering. Let's think about this for a moment. God told Adam and Eve that if they ate of the tree, they would die. But it's more than just death, right? The sin, the effects of sin are far-reaching. Look at Romans 8, starting in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here we see that suffering exists as a result of the actions of Adam and Eve, which resulted in a perpetual cycle of sin for all creation, what Paul calls this bondage to corruption. Not just humanity, all of it. So if you're ever going through a trail and an alligator tries to eat you, it's because it's mad at you for ruining creation, right? And also because they're evil dinosaurs. This means that disease, natural disasters, food insecurity, social injustice, scarcity of resources, and violence in nature are now a fact of life. And at the end of our lives, we return to the dust from which we came. Suffering exists because of sin, the Bible says. And in the meantime, creation, he tells us, is groaning together in pains of childbirth, waiting to be set free. Ultimately, right? 
But rather than focus on the end result of suffering like other worldviews, Christianity focuses on the solution to the, to the problem. Um, and that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and is ultimately completed with a remaking of all creation, right? So the renewal of our, what does he say? The renewal of our bodies? The redemption of our bodies, right? Um, so there's going to be a remaking of creation that will not include sin and suffering. Why then does suffering persist at the moment? God said there would be consequences of sin, and there are, but we shouldn't be so navel-gazing as to think that the ultimate suffering is whatever pain we experience in this life. Don't, don't get me wrong, right? I, I am not, and I want everybody to hear me say this, I am not minimizing, writing off, or otherwise devaluing the pain and suffering that we experience. Yes, there are degrees of pain and suffering, and if the worst suffering you experience is failing a class, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not making fun of you, but like, Praise God, because there is far worse. Suffering here matters. It matters because all things made by God are to be honored, especially the life that bears his image. So any human being who is suffering, whether they are your enemy or your best friend or whatever your relation to them, it matters. We should care. But the ultimate punishment is not that we suffer now, though we will, right? The ultimate punishment, like I said, is that complete separation from God. That, that at the end of our time on this earth, there is no redemption, no regeneration, no new body, no new heaven, no new earth, no direct presence of the glory of, the, of God, right? But it is the absence of all of it. Yes, there are immediate consequences, but they are not the ultimate consequences. He is a just God and he cannot forego his justice and remain who he is. So that is on the table and it will be. It'd be a fundamental betrayal of his character of the kind that Habakkuk is charging him of committing. So suffering continues because sin is still present. But it also continues for another, another attribute of God's character, right? Well, we, maybe this is not thinking about it the right way, but how I, how I framed it is like the side effect of God's patience and love and kindness is also that, that suffering continues. Right, that sounds kind of weird, but um, is it better for God to allow suffering momentarily, momentarily compared to eternity, mind you, so that people would hear the gospel, repent, believe and be saved? Or is it more patient and loving and kindness of him to come in and say, you blew it, gone? I mean, I, I tend to fall in the former, that, that his patience that allows suffering does not mean he condones it, does not mean he is not present, does not mean he does not care. It means that he wants us to repent, to see why suffering is here, to see the solution in Christ, the ultimate hope that I'll talk about in a second, and repent. Because if you look, right, like 
Every time there is suffering and God sends a message, regardless of the messenger, regardless of the situation, regardless of the tone of the message, what's the message? Repent and believe. To Job, he comes in and says, here's, here's me. This is my character. Believe in me. Don't, don't tell me that you're suffering because of some sin. You don't understand my mind, but here I am, and you can have me. And Job falls on his face and worships God. God goes to Jonah and says, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh, your great enemy, who is wicked and unrighteous, and I want you to tell them, repent and believe. And when he finally comes around and obeys, he goes to Nineveh, tells them to repent and believe, and what do they do? Repent and believe. The same thing happens in Jeremiah. As I said, he calls Jeremiah, commissions him as a prophet, sends him out to Israel with the message, repent and believe and turn back the destruction, right? Like repent and believe, repent and believe, escape the destruction. What, what God talks about when he talks about destruction and relenting, I would suggest to you, is not that there would be no more suffering and just follow me and things are going to be great, but rather there will be no ultimate devastation, So here we have these two ideas in tension with one another, that suffering and evil exist because God keeps his word, but because God keeps his word, there is also mercy in the midst of suffering. What's more, and this, if you remember nothing that I say today, and you might not because I know I've been talking for a while, I've got a lot to say. If you remember nothing else, remember this. God does not sit idly by in some distant throne room and go, well, we'll just see how this turns out. Even in Habakkuk, when Habakkuk says, how do you idly sit by and watch? What happens? God is present. He answers, right? My favorite example of, of this is that, uh, is what we find in Genesis 18, right? So Genesis 18 um, Abram's out in the garden doing Abram things, whatever you do back then in like 2000 BC or whenever it was. And he sees these three figures walking down the road and he goes up to them and one of them is God and the other two are angels. And he says, God, what are you doing here? Like, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. And God's like, should I tell him, like to, allegorically to his, or rhetorically to his pals, he's like, should I tell him? Well, yeah, I'll tell him. Um, I have heard the cries of the oppressed in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I have come down to see with my own eyes whether or not it's true. God knew it was true. He was coming down to be present in suffering. God comes down to see and be near suffering. He doesn't operate at a distance, removed from the lives of humanity. Elsewhere, we see God show up to Job as he cries out in pain. We see him, cry, we see him show up in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're, they're pushed into the fire to be burned to a crisp, and the king looks in, and he's like, holy crap, there's four people in there, and one of them looks like a child of God. We see him show up to Habakkuk, kneeling down to respond to Habakkuk's pain and confusion. But all of these moments where God shows up to comfort and respond to his people as they grieve or struggle point to the ultimate realization of God's mercy to people in their suffering. 
and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. All throughout the Old Testament, God not only calls people to repent, but promises to come down and be the solution for sin that created suffering. The solution to suffering is, as the humanists and the Buddhists have said, an end to selfishness. But the power to end selfishness does not rest in our abilities. God provides that in Jesus on the cross. How? Well, for starters, when we are suffering, we don't need answers. We don't need it, right? Like, um, I had a sore throat the other day, and I went to the doctor, and the doctor looked at it, and he was like, uh, yeah, it's this virus. Well, that did not make me feel better when he was like, yeah, you have a virus. Like, you're sick. Duh! Right? Like, answers don't help. What do you need whenever you are hurting? You need empathy. Not that I needed him to give me a hug. In his case, I needed him to give me a lozenge that would numb my throat, and he did. It was great. But answers are not the solution. We need, first and foremost, empathy. Which is why if somebody ever comes to you and they're hurting, the first thing you should do is not just go, you know what, man, God's great. He's greater than this. Like, Jesus, man, and then walk away. I love how Tim Keller explains this. He he says, so, so I'm paraphrasing, he says, Have you ever desperately wanted things to turn out differently, but saw that that wasn't going to happen? Look at Jesus in the Mount of Olives, praying to his Father, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup from me, and it doesn't happen. Have you ever suffered unjustly? Let's look at Jesus being beaten before his trial, and then ask, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Or at him standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate saying, he's not guilty, and yet still turning him over for execution for political points. Have you ever lost a loved one? Look at the father losing his son on the cross for our sake. Have you ever been hurt, confused, scared, wondering where God is in your suffering? Look at Jesus as he cries out, Eli, Eli, lena sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God knows our suffering intimately. He feels the pain of our suffering, and yet ultimately our redemption comes by means of suffering. Because Christ came and suffered, he lived that perfect life. He served as our sacrifice, which is a very brutal process of us getting forgiven. Then we have hope. God tells Habakkuk that a crushing force is going to fall against Judah as punishment for their sins. And Habakkuk begs God for understanding, begs him to let it pass. Now, Habakkuk knows the promises of God. He, He is not unaware as he is crying out to God and charging him with iniquity. He knows that suffering will come. He knows that God will allow this to happen for a purpose so that ultimately Israel can be redeemed and brought back to right worship. And he knows that beyond that, there is this hope sprinkled through scripture of the Son of God coming down and being with his people. And he probably knows the book of Isaiah pretty well that says that this Son of God will not only come down, but will die for us so that we can have perfect eternal relationship with our Creator. He knows this. But Habakkuk doesn't get to see that promise realized as we have seen it realized. 
So even as God comes in and comforts him and tries to provide him with hope, with, hey, I have a plan, I'm still in control, this is me, here is my patience. And we will see in the end, right, like Habakkuk does rejoice in the Lord because of this. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't have the same hope that we do as we read this passage because there was a, a crushing force barreling through history towards us in the form of God's wrath. And instead of us being wiped out, the just and the unjust slept up together, God intersects himself between the two and we are saved because of it. And so we can look back and see that promised destruction for rebellion thwarted. And we can see that because God was faithful to that promise, he will be faithful to his promises to come. The hope we derive in situations of deep suffering comes not from human grit and ingenuity, not from our ability to choose a better life for ourselves. The hope we can rely on to pull us through in times of suffering is the knowledge that God is true to his word. Not only is he true to his promise that suffering would result from sin, but he's also true to his promise that suffering will end. He promised Christ to be the payment for, for sin, to be the shield for us from God's wrath. And we have that hope realized. But he goes one step further. He promises that a day is coming when suffering not only ends, but is undone. I don't know how that's going to work, um, but that's what we're told. That, that pain and suffering will not only end, but will be reversed somehow. Revelation 21, we get this image. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It doesn't say he will have their tears wiped away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Suffering is gone forward and backwards. And he who is seated, seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Because we know that God is faithful to his promises. We can trust that this will happen. And as we consider the glory of Jesus, our hope and our salvation, we can endure suffering, not because it is somehow lessened or even removed from our lives, but because we have the right perspective that this suffering is fleeting. It is wrong. It should not be here. It hurts. And we should weep with those who weep, but it is fleeting compared to the promise of glory when Christ returns and this becomes a reality. God doesn't minimize our suffering by writing it off as unimportant and neither does he rebuke us for crying out in our suffering. No, he hears us. He responds to us. He identifies with us. And he will, if we place our faith in the hope he has given us in Jesus Christ, ultimately rescue us from the presence of suffering in eternity. So we're going to take communion here in, in just a moment. And this is important, right? There are two things that we are told to do consistently as um, what we, I will use the term loosely, rituals in the church. One is baptism, right? That happens after you have had a confession of faith. You have, um, you have demonstrated to, uh, to, your, 
to your friends and family that you are a believer. We will baptize you so that you are identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, so that you are dying to your former self and raising to walk in newness of life, right? To, to signify the already but not yet of that renewed body. You're, you've been born again, right? The second thing is communion. And why are we told to take communion. Jesus tells us whenever he's breaking the bread over Passover with his disciples the night before the execution, he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you as he breaks the bread. And as he pours the wine, this is my blood poured out for you. Jesus was becoming the lamb, the the burnt offering of Passover, the thing that served to, to put off God's wrath from you, right? That's Jesus. That's why we as Christians don't celebrate Passover. Because Christ has come, the ultimate lamb, has provided that sacrifice. And so at Aletheia, we provide the opportunity to take communion weekly. You don't have to take it every single week, but um, we are all moved in different ways, right? And so some of us want to do it every week, and it's the same thing always. And some of us were like, I only want to do it once a month, because if I, if I do it more than that, I cheapen it. And that's, that's fine. I'm not telling you you have to take it every week. But... I want you to understand what we are doing as we engage in this. This is an act of worship. This is an act of sitting back and reveling in the grace of God that he in his mercy has sent us Christ to provide a way out of ultimate suffering and death, the removal from, from God forever. And so as we, as we sit down to take communion, some things should happen. Right? Like, like, don't just grab it and dip it in the juice and sit down. Like, you're missing the point if that's what you're doing. Prime your heart. Prime your heart. Think about why this is necessary. Um, confess, right? Repent and believe as we walk up there. Repent and believe. But this is your time to reflect on, on what God is saying to you. And so um, it should call us to remember the price that was paid for our adoption, and it should bring us to repentance and it encourages our faith because look what God has done for us. So before you approach the table, be sure to go to the throne in prayer. Um, so I'm going to pray. Uh, the, the duo, the duet will come up and set and then we'll carry on. Father, I thank you. I thank you first and foremost that you don't, you don't tell us that our hurt is wrong. You don't tell us that because we feel suffering or because we question you or because we cry out in anguish. You don't tell us that we are out of place. You, you welcome it. God, you say that a broken heart you will not despise. And so thank you for that hope, even that small hope that as we suffer, as we contemplate things that are confusing and difficult for us to deal with, that you give us grace and mercy, that you hear us, that you respond, God. I pray that, um, that we would, as believers, carry with us the knowledge that while suffering matters, suffering is fleeting. That, that you are providing an eternal place of refuge where we get to be with you for eternity and help us to gain that perspective so that we can suffer and not be crushed, hurt and not be destroyed because you are faithful to your word. I pray that that would be true in our hearts and our minds today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.